We're looking at a book by Machen pretty soon, Liberty, uh, Christianity and Liberalism. I think it was Machen that made this comment. It's in a funny way. He said, the Christian faith has an advantage uh, over liberalism in that Christianity is real. <laughs> liberalism is false. Your Christ-centered Bibles indeed glories in presenting the way to heaven to you, in part because it's the only way to heaven. God has given us a book to tell us how to know him and how to have eternal life. John Wesley famously said, God has condescended to show us the way to heaven. Oh, give, give us that book. Let me be a, a man of one book. By any means, give me the book of God. Christianity also announces not only the way to heaven, but that we can know that we are going to heaven. And no other makes such firm claims as our New Testaments. Other religions boast of their heavens. We hear of Nirvana and Elysium. We hear of people speaking of the great beyond. And my personal favorite at funerals is that better place. But there is no foundation to be found in any other spot than the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. As built on man's estimates, we are asked the bizarre request to place our eternal souls uh, upon shifting tides of sand and of time. So let anything of man slip in as the basis for coming to heaven or knowing you're coming to heaven. And when you do that, both salvation and assurance grows wings and must fly away. All you have left ultimately is sentimentalism. So we are coming here to our last message, in some ways our best message, on our series of faith with the topic of assurance. And what a fine place I think it is to conclude. John says here in the fifth chapter of his letter, he who has the Son has the life. Present tense. It's a present possession. And we would think that that present possession would be known. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life, no matter what else he may have or may not have. No heaven. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Here are those who trust in the Lord Jesus. There's faith. There's rest in him. So that you may know that you have eternal life. It's not something that, that's an approximation. It's not a hope so. It's not a maybe. But a truly know now that you are in the way to glory. You can know that you are going to heaven. That is an astounding claim, is it not? So many just go, they throw their arms up in despair and they say, well, who really knows? We do in this book. We are given the clear path. Now, again, with any doctrine, their assurance has been abused both on the right hand and on the left. You have in the one ditch is the idea that only a select few can have a special knowledge that they are going to heaven, that they are saved, and that when they die, they're going to be welcomed into glory. This, in essence, was the view of the Roman Catholic Church at the time of Calvin. They actually pronounced curses upon the Protestants who insisted that the Bible teaches what we just read in 1 John that we not only can know, but this, that's the proper way to live the Christian life, to have this assurance. And they said that this is 
This is detrimental to the Christian life. It's detrimental to the church. It's detrimental to holiness. It just leads to presumption. But here it is in Scripture, as we're going to see. Then the opposite ditch, we find the swampy filth of presumption, who, where people are saying, yeah, I think I have a pretty good chance of going to heaven. And they presume uh, upon things that are not really theirs. A soul believes it's on its way to glory while living and running all for hell. The Bible says very clearly, by their fruits you shall know them. Any gospel that lets you live in sin, denies sin, makes God a liar and Jesus a servant, a minister of sin. And for that, we would look back at 1 John chapter 1. But the middle way, the straight path, is one of grace, of true grace, which keeps the soul in a constant warfare with sin. There is enmity now with the, with the old man. And on the other hand, fills the soul with the comforts of that grace, the riches of grace, as Paul calls it, the surpassing riches of grace, the surpassing riches of grace in kindness toward us, all in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's how he puts it. Does it in chapter 2 or 3 of Ephesians? It's this mountain of grace. And it's just unthinkable to me that God would be so gracious to us, and yet we're kind of blindfolded to know whether that grace is ours and that we are indeed heirs of heaven. So our first point that we're going to look, first of two points, is the fact of assurance to those who believe, who have faith, who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation from their own sins and receive life everlasting. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, and it's received by the hand of faith. So many texts lean in this direction specifically, and at the same time, as you read through the whole Bible, the tenor of the Bible itself is toward this comfortable walk and not a blind walk with God. We don't serve an unknown God. We serve a known God. And he is our God. Just to take you through a quick reconnaissance of Scripture, look at old Job in the Old Testament. In the midst of all of his trials, all of the upheaval that Lord, the Lord in his providence visited upon him. What did he say in the 19th chapter? As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I will see God whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another. My heart faints within me, he says. So even with all of that upheaval, he still had assurance. My Redeemer lives. I will see my Redeemer. I'm going to my Savior. Though weak in himself and fainting, he knows. This is an Old Testament saint. This is a believer in the Lord who is outside of Israel, in fact. How much more now as the sun has risen from the dead and ascended on high and now burns brightly in the sky of our fallen world where the gospel has gone forth, the everlasting gospel that shouts to the nations, believe and live. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The Old Testament David could boast that the Lord was his salvation and therefore he feared none, Psalm 27. As his shepherd, he looked upon death with no fear. 
Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, if I die today, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Not maybe he's with me. I hope it turns out well, but you are with me. He could see afar off in our resurrection days, new covenant days, and knew that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. He knew he would dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Why? Because he trusted Because David had faith in a God who pursued him all the days of his life with what? Goodness and mercy. He had tasted of the Lord and found him gracious. Isaiah specifically assigns to faith the office of assurance when he wrote, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Faith is the instrument And we have this peace, this hope, this assurance that comes from the Lord. God gives it. He keeps us. What peace is there if the sword of hell is hanging precariously over uh, your head? You can't have any peace if hell is always a threat to you and you're not sure of, of eternal life. We have heard from John's letter. Now hear him speak in the blessed third chapter of his gospel. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. His whole mission is salvation. His whole mission is to bring life eternal. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed, there's the word again, in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Later in chapter 5, similar words. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has, present tense, eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. How is it possible that somebody could pass out of death and judgment into life and salvation and not know it? John 3 ends in this stark way. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son, that is, submit to the gospel, the call, and to turn in faith to Christ, will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. We can know that we are on the way to heaven. We can know that we are on the way to hell. And the bottom line is, is if Jesus is not your Savior, you are going to hell. It doesn't matter whether you are doing horrible, atrocious things like our governor is doing right now, as he is exporting the butcher of children a man whose hands are filled with blood, or whether you're just a common run-of-the-mill sinner. There's no hope outside of Jesus. Paul, then, is very full on this. You can see what road you are on on the Bible map when Paul says, For this reason I also suffer these things, for I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he's able to guard what I entrusted to him until that last day. He knows that he can trust the Lord for that awesome last day, the judgment day, 2 Timothy 1.12. The best chapter of your Bible, Romans chapter 8, ends in this way. I am convinced, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers or height or depth, nor any other created thing 
will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And then at the end of Paul's life, writing to Timothy, he said, I have fought the good fight. He's about to face martyrdom. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Every Christian has this crown of righteousness awaiting them in glory. That's our hope. That's our faith. That's our trust. Commenting on this passage, J.C. Ryle says, Let us observe the apostle speaks without any hesitation or distrust. He regards the crown as a sure thing, as his own already. It's reserved. He declares with unfaltering confidence his firm persuasion that the righteous judge will give it to him. Paul was no stranger to all the circumstances and accompaniments of that solemn day to which he referred the great white throne, the assembled world, the open books, the revealing of all secrets, the listening angels, the awful sentence, the eternal separation of the lost and the saved, the goats and the sheep. All these were things which he was, of which he was well acquainted. Remember, he was one who actually went up into the third heavens. But none of these things moved him, says Ryle. His strong faith overleaped them all. And he only saw Jesus... And his all-prevailing advocate, and the blood of sprinkling, and sin washed away. A crown, he said, is laid up for me. The Lord himself shall give it to me. He speaks as if he saw it with his own eyes. That's the reality. That's the certainty. That's the assurance of the Christian faith. He saw it by faith. So assurance, beloved, is a fact It is not only a biblical fact, but it is a divinely given, infallible reality. And it is known through faith. We dare not say that the Christian hope is a mere hope so, a a, a high probability, a, a pretty good maybe. That's not how the Bible approaches it at all. Our confession masterly summarizes the teaching of Scripture in chapter 18 when it says this certainty of salvation is not a bare conjecture and probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith founded upon the divine truth of the promises of salvation, the inward evidence of those graces unto which these promises are made, the testimony of the spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God, Which spirit is the earnest, the down payment of our inheritance, whereby we are sealed to the day of redemption? So there's the fact. There's the reality. There is such a thing as infallible biblical assurance. Have we that ourselves? Is the crown of righteousness before us? Is that something that our hearts are fixed upon? It's part of those things that are above that we are to seek at the right hand where Christ is seated, and he, who is eager to give that uh, to his people. Now this brings us to our second point. If there is such a thing as Christian assurance, what is it in faith that is the key to a solid confidence and sure hope of heaven? 
Is it in ourselves? We trust in ourselves? Certainly not. We rather overcome ourselves by faith. Faith is always looking away from self and looking to Christ. Paul claimed that crown with a sharp knowledge of his own sins, his own failures, his own evil, his own weaknesses. Paul, remember, in the same breath, called himself the chief of sinners. Paul, all of his life long, struggled to the last with a contrary law that was in his members, carrying him away to do those things that he would not do and to not do the things that he would, Romans 7. At the very end of his life, after a full life of serving the Lord, he still looked at his own righteousness in Philippians chapter 3 as scubadon. That's a Greek word that means refuse, waste, maybe even excrement. He looked, he believed solely to a righteousness that was not his own in Christ rather than looking to his own righteousness of which he had none. Those are the two ways. We are not brought to heaven because we are good. Alan Jackson is wrong. Working hard to get to heaven will not do you any good whatsoever. It's Jesus' work and his work alone. If you want to be saved by works, be saved by his finished work when he paid in full for our sins. Our good works function only as a proof rather than a pillar to build our assurance upon. Even a hayseed plowboy knows the difference between the trunk and the branch, between the root of a, of a tree and the fruit that comes forth from it. What is the root then for this infallible Assurance. How does faith bring assurance to you from the root, this infallible root, of God's assurance for, for you? Well, there are three things to be considered. And this is our second point, and we'll have to conclude with that. I actually had a third point, and I knew that it would have taken us to way longer. So um, you take that into consideration. The chief of these three things is that your trust is in God. Pure and simple. You trust the Lord. You trust God. You trust in God and God alone. He is worthy of your faith. He is worthy of your, of your um, resting your eternal soul upon. And by God, I mean the true and living God of the Bible, the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Faith in God certainly is singular. When I believe in the Father, I'm believing in the Son, and I'm believing in the Holy Spirit. When I'm believing in Christ, I'm believing in the Father, and I believe in the Holy Spirit. When I believe in the Holy Spirit, I'm believing in the Father and in the Son. It is singular, and yet our faith is to be exercised upon each of the three persons. There's a unique feature to be found in each of them. The apostolic benediction brings out the love of God, presumably the Father, and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship and communion of the Holy Spirit reflects the roles which each three persons fulfills in the saving of your soul. I think, John, maybe you prayed earlier, you mentioned the Father and the Savior and the Holy Spirit. All three are saviors. All of them are our redemption. I know you didn't mean otherwise. So, you are to have faith in your heavenly Father. The everlasting, unchangeable love of the Father in election. He loved you before you were you. He loved you before you, you sinned. He loved you before the foundation of the world. 
Uh, you are loved with an everlasting love. You love him because he so greatly loved you first. That's the context. His salvation is all of himself. His um, love to you arises not from you, but from him. No human, no angel whispered in his ear, why don't you save a great host to your glory? Because nothing in us merits such an unexpected attitude uh, to not spare anything for his very enemies, which is what he did. When man fell into sin, I believe firmly Satan thought for sure mankind was undone. God will treat him like an enemy just like he's treating me. Ha ha, I got the Lord. And instead the Lord showed magnificent grace far beyond what we could ever imagine. It's like the prodigal son coming back home. And you're expecting the father just to lay into him and bring judgment, to bring justice, to bring law. You moron, you idiot, why did you do that? And we're surprised to show the attitude of God to welcome sinners. This God who is love is for you so that nothing can, bring, uh, nothing can be against you. He saves completely as a self-moved action on his part. He's not reaching halfway down to heaven and say, hey, jump up to me and grab my hand, and then you'll be surely saved. He condescends to the humble. He saves, and, um, he saves in such a way that he becomes your salvation. As Matthew Henry put it, God loves to save at a deadlift. When you're bench pressing, you are not getting any assistance from the weight to go up, are you, Tim? That doesn't help you. God saves us at a dead lift. He carries his sheep in his arms. He saves and welcomes and assures the believer into his own glory and all for his own name's sake. The freeness of God's love is what frees us from our doubts when we are reading him aright and understand how great his love is for us. And really, his love is measured so greatly by the gift that he gave. And that gift is his second self, his son. That brings us to the second subpoint under three. The son is the measure of the father's love. He delivered him up for us all. And if he has delivered him up for us all and did not spare him, how will he not with him freely give us all things? The life of the mediator, his death on the cross, his resurrection over the grave, his ascension and sovereignty and intercession as a high priest for us right now, all are part of his being a perfect mediator to bring you from your lowly, hell-deserving condition to heaven. The Son of God come in the flesh. He is truly the rock of your salvation, a rock that cannot be moved, a rock which puts steel in your backbone by faith and makes you to stand firm. The full forgiveness, the full justification of all of our sins, not a single one, not covered by the blood, is the offer of the gospel by faith. And in that gospel, we meet a fully reconciled God by his propitiation, from all of our sins by faith in this way. Propitiation means that the anger of God is removed. And expiation means the guilt of our sins are removed. Thus God is fully reconciled. The gospel of Jesus is fully and completely free and brings abundance of grace, 
pardoned for all sin. The righteousness of God is imputed to you as your title to heaven when you trust in the Lamb of God. A new power, a new heart is placed in you as the heart of stone is taken out. A new privilege as you're brought from being an enemy, loathed by God, to be a friend, to be a family member, and so privileged. A new risen heavenly life becomes yours. A new status. You are called saints in the Bible. Not just some believers you see as in the Roman church, but rather all who trust in Christ are set apart and holy. Your names are right now written in heaven in the book of life as Christ prepares there a place for you where in a certain principled sense you are already seated. Those are the realities. And these are realities that can be known. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, that is, you who believe, you who've been born again, you who've been made new, who are now protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. These are things that we know of. These are things that we see afar off and embrace. We receive them from the hand of God, from the Father, from the Son, and now from the Spirit. The abiding of the Spirit in you, where he will never leave you or forsake you. The sealing of the Holy Spirit on your life. You are kept by God. Um, what is the word? What's the opposite? Of imminently, as well as transcendently. The Spirit's testimony to your sonship, crying out, Abba, Father, in you, being the foretaste of heaven, being the, the down payment, the earnest of heaven. He is the seal unto the day of redemption. His job is to keep us. He fails never. The mark of God is, as it were, upon your foreheads and on your hearts. This is where the Spirit then and the Word of God work together in dwelling us. The Spirit, according to the Word, is constantly working in us. And the Word, according to the Spirit, the living Spirit and the living Word together. The Bible is our book. When you are saved, when you are redeemed, this book becomes yours. You recognize your Father's voice in, this, in these pages. You recognize your Savior, your Redeemer's uh, language to you. You hear the Father and the Son speak by the Spirit. The scriptures themselves as self-authenticating, whose authority derives from the living and triune God, is brought across to us by the testimony of the Holy Spirit. And we see our own reflection in the Bible, in the change that God does in us by the gospel, a new heart, a new life, and a new destiny is ours. In fact, we come to see everything through this lens, don't we? When we are, we are, we are made new, everything changes. All of life does that. As uh, one of my favorite quotes from Lewis, he said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. That's the kind of tsunami that the grace of God by the Spirit does in our life. It radically changes everything. So that's the, that's the, the, the first point. 
This is the soil. This is the root. Would you grow in assurance, draw near to the Father's love, draw near to the the gracious Savior who is bone of your bones, flesh of your flesh now, who will not lose you, and the Holy Spirit through the Word. Now, we could go on and on here. I just recommend here to you, read John Owen's treatise on communion with God. He breaks all these three out. Just magnificent stuff. There's even an abridged version if some of you are trembling in your boots over John Owen. You shouldn't. In short here, draw near to God, and God draws near to you. And you will enjoy such assurance that perhaps you haven't even imagined. The second part, then, is trust after trusting in God, is that our faith is not only Trinitarian, but our faith is covenantal. The gospel comes to us not as a covenant of works, It's not a covenant of works that has been regrafted upon a branch of grace. It's not a lighter and lesser law that you can fulfill. And when you perform, God will clap. God will um, assure you that you're saved. It's rather the opposite. Grace has fulfilled the covenant of works and more. The promises of God in this covenant is what uh, brings life to us uh, in uh, the Lord Jesus the, um, his promises in this covenant are firm and steadfast. This is God's will. This is his testament, if you will. Um, his promises that all flow to us. Every single promise that God makes to you flows to you in covenant with you. God never deals with human beings apart from covenant. And what does Paul say the, the promises are to us? Now the promises are yes and amen. They're full to us in this covenant of grace, and especially in these new covenant times. And so it's not based on us. Thomas Brooks puts his finger on how gracious this covenant is. It's not about us. It's not about our sins being um, a hindrance at all, because God has overcome all sin. He says of the promises of the covenant, they are a most sure and glorious foundation for the very worst of sinners to stay their filthy, guilty, wearied, burdened, perplexed souls upon. Seeing that God looks not for any penny or pennyworth, for any portion or proportion in the creature to draw his love, but he will justify, pardon, and save for his name's sake. Isaiah 55, 1 and 2. Come, you who are hungry and thirst, come and buy without money. This is the love of God. Seeing all the motives that move God to show mercy are in his own bosom, in his own heart, seeing they are all within doors, there's no reason why the the vilest sinners should sit down and say, there is no hope, there is no help for me. That's the fullness of the offer of the covenant gospel, you see. This is where you deal with the promise, the better promises, and the more sure word of prophecy. The surety of scriptures is what feeds our assurance as we trust the living word. Um, The surety of the word assures the faith as we recognize, as Paul says in Romans 10, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And part of the fruit of that is being assured and made certain. God said it. Here I am believing it. That, in my case, settles it for my assurance. The God who cannot lie says so. The God who, more than that, has sworn by himself 
is faithful. I think when you think about assurance, there is, for every believer, a basic assurance that the Bible is true. We may struggle with doubts over the Word of God uh, being applicable to us. Maybe this isn't for me because I'm not believing or I'm not doing things right, and so we have questions about that. But when it comes to the solidity of the Word, I think God does give assurance to just about every Christian The word and especially these exceedingly great and precious promises being believed, these are the banquet of God. You should be memorizing the promises, hiding them in your hearts. This is what fattens your soul with certitude and with comfort. And this is not when we are worthy. This is not when we are doing well. This grace, this assurance is not for just the high achievers. Even assurance itself is a gift. It's given in a way of grace. God does not issue out assurance in a mechanical way. He deals with each of our souls as we have need. So it's for the unworthy. It's all of grace. God in the covenant has so richly promised to be God to us and we to be his people. He so fully and widely welcomes sinners. How much more than when we have become his children and we are no longer his enemies. As we said before, his promises are yes and amen in Christ. We're part of his very family, his flock. Will a member of his family ever be lost? Impossible. That's why I love one of my favorite verses is Luke chapter 12, 12:32. Fear not, little flock. For it is the Father's good pleasure to give to you the kingdom. And then thirdly, our faith is in God. Our faith is covenantal, received from the word of God. It's anchored in God's own self-authenticating covenant word, his gospel. Thirdly, our faith is experimental. That is that we experience our relationship with God. We know ourselves as we know our God as John Calvin put it famously at the beginning of his institutes. And we know God only as we know ourselves. So this third point, the touchstone here, is getting into the magnificent change that has been wrought in our impotent lives. We see, we sense that we are now new creatures. Whether we are converted later in life and we have a night and day turn from darkness into light, or whether we are raised in the church and are understanding God more and more that he's my savior, he loves me, he set me apart when I was a baby, and he is my Lord, we see that difference that takes place in us. We recognize now that we have been fearfully and wonderfully remade. You see, everything changes when you become a Christian. You go from the natural man to the spiritual. You go from death to life from being a naturalist that this world is all there is, or some kind of an idol worshiper of a false god, or a hedonist, which is another kind of idolatry, or a moralist, which is yet another kind of idolatry, to being one who is born again. And you enter into a new world. Heaven above is softer blue, earth beneath a sweeter green. Something lives in every hue that Christless eyes have never seen. The whole tenor of life is lit up where darkness 
reigned before. You are no longer in the flesh. You are no longer in the kingdom of Satan and of darkness. You no longer take pleasure as you once did in sin, which is now to you the way of death. You recognize, as Pilgrim did at the outset of Pilgrim's Progress, that this world, once your heaven, once your all in all, once your playground, is a city of destruction. And you must flee it. And the new home that you have is the celestial city to which you press. And this includes all kinds of things, including especially obedience. If there's no change in your life, and yet you're saying, I'm born again, read 1 John. It'll stand you right up. You, you, to be saved means you're going in the opposite direction from hell. You see, sin, if you think about it, is just obedience in reverse. Sin is not a substance. Sin cannot be put in a test tube. Sin is the action of a, of a, a, a rational soul going against God. All sin is against the law, and the law is the transcript of God's own character. All sin is against God. And I think it was Augustine who said that that's why we sin, because it's against God. That's the nature of our rebellious, fallen um, condition. So um, you find now, as somebody who's saved, a new delight in what you could not delight in before. All of a sudden, you love God who has loved you. You love worship. You love drawing near to the Lord. You love praising him. You love prayer. You love his word. You love to be taught it. You love to put it into practice. You love to to show love to others, to show mercy to the needy, to care for those who struggle. You're no longer selfish as you were before, though you still struggle with it. And you think first of others. And you grow in this more and more unto that perfect day as as the path shines before you. The more you see the image of God growing in you, the more your assurance of God's handiwork in your life comforts you. You bring forth fruit that you never would or could before you believed. See, this leads into all the advantages. And that was the third point, which I'm already going over time that I can't bring up. It is such an advantage to have a full assurance and certainty of faith. But here we'll have to end up by just saying, up with faith. Exercise faith more. Faith in the Father. Faith in the Son. Faith in the Holy Spirit. Faith in the covenantal gospel according to a word that can never fail or falter. Heaven and earth will pass away, and so will you soon from the face of this planet. But his word shall not pass away. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And therefore, so shall you, if you believe. And therefore, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified, unless you're not a believer? If you, have, if you don't have Christ in you, you're not going to heaven. But if Christ is in you, then you do. You are going to heaven. Elsewhere, Paul says, Christ in you, the hope of heaven. It's that simple. Have Christ in you, you go to heaven. You have Christ in you, you go into heaven. What a buoy this is to your soul, is it not? This is an advantage, and there are so many that spring out from here. Let me close with this beautiful poem. Time of sickness and of health, time of poverty and wealth, 
times of trial and of grief, times of triumph and relief, times the tempter's power to prove, times to taste the Savior's love. All must come and last and end, as shall please my heavenly friend. Christ is in control of your heart and life. Give yourself, surrender yourself to him. Have faith and be assured of his grace in your life. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the riches of it, and especially the comforts that you give through the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Father, that cries, Abba, Father, the Spirit of the Son, that points us to Jesus, takes everything from Christ and applies him to us. Uh, We ask, Lord, for um, greater hearts of love as they trust more in you and are expanded. And, Lord, help us to walk comfortably before, before you. Help us, Lord, to struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Always remind us of the enmity that you've placed between us. We cannot be happy in a backslidden state, but you stir us up, Lord, uh, to return unto you. And so grant to us your assurances, your your, uh, certitudes, and help us to be a confident people. May the people see in us that we know the living God. We know our Lord. We have this confidence in us. And help that hope to shine out in every way. We pray in your mighty name. Amen.